Luke chapter 14. So I, one of the hard things for a pastor is um, figuring out the title for your sermon. You would think that it, it's like getting into the Greek or getting into the Hebrew or, you know, wrestling with what is the main, you know, the main point. You know, if you've come from my tradition, you know, it's got to be three sermon points and keep it short and brief. You might think that that's the challenge, but the real challenge is sometimes what is the title going to be? Because it's got to be catchy. And uh, so this, this week, uh, I have gone back and forth, and I finally landed it. It's not going to be in, on our website as this, but the question that I have, is, or the title I have, is a question. Who's at your party? Who's at your party? Um, most people, when they think of the kingdom of God, uh, they, they see it as a place where there are all kinds of constraining rules and regulations, and uh, heaven itself, truth be told, isn't seen to be all that appealing. you got a bunch of fat cherubim floating around on clouds, strumming harps, and it sounds kind of blasé. It, there, there, there won't be much to do other than singing to God. And it'll probably be boring and pretty predictable because everybody's going to behave and it's going to be really nice. And there probably won't be much adventure there. There won't be much discovery and there won't be process or progress. But Jesus, if, if you read the Gospels and you even kind of look at the totality of what's going on in the New Testament, Jesus is basically saying, my kingdom is, is everything that your heart is created for. Everything that you kind of yearn for. It's like a party. Heaven, my friends, believe it or not, especially those who are a little bit more stoic, heaven is actually going to be a celebration. It is going to be a party. We see this even in evidence in Jesus' very first miracle. What was his very first miracle? It was found where Jesus was attending a wedding in Cana. And what did he do? He will, if in today's kind of terms, he fixed a broken tap. He served the best wine. He turned water into wine so that the celebration may continue. And he didn't do two buck chuck. He did the best of the best. You also see this in his story of the, the story of the, or the parable of the prodigal son. The story of the son who ran away from the father and he went to a faraway country. He, he debauchery, hung out with women, did things that a good son should not do, find, found himself in a place where he, he hit rock bottom and he said, I need to return back to my father and I pray, man, maybe he will just treat me like he does a servant. And what did the father do? He, he saw his son coming and he ran to him and he, he sent out this kind of bulletin announcement. Bring me the very best robe, put it on him, put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the, fatted, the fattest cow out there with the finest marbling in there. Bring out the ribeyes and the fillets and let's kill it and eat it and let's celebrate where my son, this son was dead and is alive again. He is lost and he is found. And it says here that they began to celebrate. You even see it in the final book 
that we have, the book of Revelation, it gives us a picture of heaven. Us as the bride. Jesus as the bridegroom. And it is ultimately this big wedding feast. And for this reason, one of our 2020 goals uh, as a church is for our community life. That it, we, would, we want to celebrate and we want to enjoy the community that has been formed by the gospel. So parties are a central part of our church life. I'm not so sure that's happening yet. But I believe that as we the gospel really gets a hook in our heart and it changes our mind, we should be a people who are known for our celebrations, for our parties. So this morning, we are going to look at Luke chapter 14 and Jesus is at a party. And he uses this opportunity to teach that the kingdom of God is to be like a party, which I told you is significant. It's significant because we should be people who are, our hearts are filled with joy. Now, for those of you who are just here this Sunday, we are in a series called Come to Jesus. It's looking at Jesus' interaction with people and his call to them to come to me, come to Jesus. But this is also a, for the church, of Missio Dei Church, a, a come to Jesus moment. Hey folks, let's have an honest conversation about who we are and what God has called us to be about. So this morning, look at it in these two lenses of, huh, look at how people are responding or what Jesus is calling and what is he calling us to do in response. My friends, would you stand for the reading of Luke chapter 14? We are going to start at verse 12 and read through verse 24. Hear these words. He said also to the man who had invited them, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do you not invite your friends or your brothers or, or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid? But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame and the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just." When one of those who reclined at the table with him heard this, these things, he said to him, ah, Blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. But he said to him, A man once gave a great banquet and invited many. And at the time for the banquet, he sent his servant to say to those who he had invited, Come, for everything is now ready. But they all alike began to make excuses. The first said to him, I've bought a field and I must go and see it. Please have me excused. And, and another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen and I, I go to examine them. Please have me excused. And another said, I've married a wife and therefore I cannot come. All sounds pretty good, right? Good excuse right there. So the master came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house became angry and said to the servant, Go out quickly to the streets and the lanes of the city and bring in the poor and the crippled and the blind and the lame. And the servant said, Sir, what you, you commanded has been done and there is still room. And the master said to his servant, 
go out to the highways and the hedges and compel people to come in that my house may be filled. For I tell you, none of those men who were invited shall taste my banquet. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So, while Jesus is at this party, he looks around and Jesus is noticing a couple things. The first thing that he notices is how, how, how people were kind of angling to choose places of honor. And, if you will, the best seats in the house, the seats up near the important people. And Jesus says, listen, when you come to a party, don't take the high places. Don't take the high places because then if the host sends you back to a low place, you're going to be pretty embarrassed. You're going to be put in your place. So I compare it as kind of going to a a wedding where your daughter is marrying kind of a president of the company and you see an open spot at the, the head of the table and you say, man, you know what? I'm pretty awesome. I'm pretty awesome, so I'm sure the president would love for me to sit up there. And Jesus says, no, don't do that. Instead, choose a lower place. So while Jesus is kind of, you know, he he is giving some social advice. This is kind of some humility, you know, check your pride at the door. That's not really the ultimate theme that is going on here. Jesus was also showing us the path of salvation. This is how salvation works, because the truth is that none of us deserve a high place at God's table. None of us. We don't even deserve to be at that table. But the gospel is that Jesus, who did deserve the high place, took the low road for us. He took the place of the cross. He took on suffering and the penalty for our sin. He took our place on the cross and offers us his place at the table but to get it you see you have to acknowledge that you deserve a low place and that you are to receive god's offer as a as an offer as a gift but most people stumble with that because we feel like we have to earn our place we have to earn our place. We believe that our, our acceptance is conditional. We, and honestly, we've, we've been conditioned to think that, right? We, we see that in our family systems. My acceptance is conditional. We, we feel it in our workplace. My, my, my position is conditional if I behave, if I work, if I produce in such a way. We, we think that others will only love us if we show that we are worthy of that love. We think that God will only love us if we're worthy of His love. So we spend our lives trying to show our worthiness. That we think we, that we're, we're better than other people. We're, we're smarter. We work harder. We're morally superior. Well, look how talented I am. We're constantly trying to, to showboat how great we really are. And God's acceptance is not dependent on your ability to show how worthy you are. God's acceptance is a gift. And it has to be received that way. We are so guilty in our sins that we could never, ever earn a place at God's table. So God has given us the gift of life and acceptance and family and forgiveness as a gift. You see, in Christianity, the way up is always down. 
If you exalt yourself before God, you are ultimately going to be rejected. If you humble yourself before God, you are going to be received by God. But the second thing that Jesus notices at this party is that the Pharisee who is throwing this party has invited all of his rich friends to be at the party. All of his rich friends. Jesus himself wasn't rich. So you you kind of wonder, why is he at this party? Well, he was well known. And honestly, maybe they even thought, man, he, he, he does some pretty cool tricks. He, he, he performs miracles. Maybe Jesus back then would have been the guy with a ton of Twitter followers. Who knows? But Jesus was well known. So Jesus turns to the, the Pharisee, and the man who had invited him, and says, when you have a party, do not invite people who can pay you back. Invite people who can't pay you back. And then you're going to be blessed, and you're, if you do that, you, you will have a reward in heaven. So here's just a few things. What Jesus was telling them here is basically economic suicide. You see, in that time, the, the Jewish table, the Jewish meal time was primarily a business form. So inviting the rich, inviting the influential people to a meal was a strategic economic decision because the people that you invited a meal would in turn invite you to a meal and business would start being had. Does it sound like our American kind of way of doing stuff? You would never hear a very a CEO of a very prominent business say, man, let's go to the highways and byways and find the poorest of the poor and invite them to a meal because they have a lot to offer. No, they would turn to other CEOs, other businesses. They would turn to people who had wealth. So, of course, these people were inviting the rich because, man, their generosity, their wealth would ultimately benefit me. But to to invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind meant that you were inviting people who could never, ever pay you back. They were people who could never reciprocate love. They could never reciprocate anything. And, my friends, this is how, honestly, most of us live. Most of us, generally speaking, invest in the lives of others who can benefit us. We're not trying to take from others but generally speaking we make decisions and we even form relationships and pursue life in a way that ultimately benefits me is it true i notice it's awful quiet in here i'm not getting a lot of amens because it's awkward but it's true is it not we, we invest in the lives of other people, the lives that we know. Man, if I become a friend with this one or that one, it's going to benefit me. They've got a pool. I'm going to invest in their lives. They're wealthy. Man, maybe we can go on a vacation with them. Man, they are friendly. They're loving. I'm going to become friends with them because it is going to make me feel warm, loved, and accepted. But Jesus says that is not the way that we are to live. And here's a few reasons why. He says you do not want to live by this law of reciprocity. You don't want, when it comes to a party, what do you deserve? 
We deserve to be rejected. Why were you accepted at God's table? Because Jesus left everything to come on earth to rescue you. He turned his back from his interests and gave them up ultimately for you. So what Jesus is doing is striking this whole idea which undergirds how we think. He said to the man, when you give a dinner or a banquet, do you not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return? And you be repaid? But when you, when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. For you will be repaid at the gener- resurrection of the just. That's how most of us live. You get what you deserve and you give others what they deserve. My wife and I, sadly, we even live this way. If, if uh, someone takes us out for dinner, what do we immediately start thinking? We better have them over for dinner, right? Oh, they took us out to this place. <sighs> All right, so much for Wendy's, you know. You know, it's like, okay, we, we got to at least be on par here and maybe knock it up a level or two. Or, or when it comes to if somebody has us over to their house, immediately, man, we can't, we can't bring the meal because they're providing the meal, so what do we do? We better bring a really nice hostess gift, right? Someone gets us a gift, and immediately we start thinking, what should I give them? But you cannot do that with God. The most fundamental tenet of the gospel is that you and I owed a debt that we could never repay. That's the gospel. God had to give it to us, his, his entirety as a gift, and the cost that, a, a gift that cost him everything, and that we just receive it. We just receive it, and God did it gladly. And if you understand that, if you understand that, that should shatter the whole idea that we would invest our lives entirely on those who could repay us. If God did this, maybe we need to relook at the way that we invest in other lives. God poured himself out for us when we could not pay him back. How is it possible that, that we get that and we still, we still, I still use my stuff and leverage my life and throw parties in such a way that primarily benefit me how could someone who recognize recognizes that they are present at god's party because of his mercy given as a gift how can we live a life of selfishness it's inconceivable The second reason that Jesus says that we should invite other people to parties who can't pay us back is because he is going to reward us in heaven. For you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Jesus' life was not one of luxury. He didn't even have a pillow to lay his head. He did not have a home that he owned, a 30-year mortgage. He didn't own any of that. He, He lived 
poor. He was a servant. He poured out his life for us to the point of giving away everything, including his very lifeblood so that we ultimately could be saved. But he, he did that not because he enjoyed poverty, because he enjoyed pain. He did it because he had set his focus on eternity. He looked beyond this life now. And he looked farther out. He was willing to be impoverished here so that he could be enriched there. And part of the riches there would be the fact that we would be able to enjoy him. He expanded his circle of joy and was willing to be impoverished here so that he could enjoy riches in heaven. He told us, hey, this is how we are to live. We are, what we sacrifice down here will be abundantly repaid at the resurrection of the just. Abundantly. And personally, applying to me and to you, I think that one of the things that, that keep us back from really being generous is failing to consider or take seriously Jesus' promises about eternity. We will be repaid, my friends, at the resurrection of the just. Do you believe that? If so, your money, your generosity, your time, your parties will follow. Randy Alcorn said, said that the bald truth about your money is that when you die, you can't take any of it with you. But you can send it on to heaven ahead of you. But you do that here by investing in the kingdom of God. So I ask you again, do you really believe that? If so, your life would be characterized as a party that you throw for people who cannot really pay you back. So here's what I'm going to do for the remaining time. We're finally in the two main points. That was all background. Some of you are going, well, it's better than last week. Last week we had seven points. <laughs> so here's, here's what I'm going to do, two things. I want you to think about your life in terms of this issue in a very general way. The first question is going to be this. Who is the party of your life thrown for? You see, Jesus told this story not to make rules about the guest list at your next birthday party, but to make you think about a bigger picture of your life. So that's what we're going to do first, and then we're going to look at some practical, kind of maybe some overlooked aspect of the Christian life. So first, if your party, if your life was depicted by a party, kind of a movie trailer, you know, if your life was depicted by a party, who would be the invited guest? The party of your life. Who is it thrown for? Is it primarily from people for people who can benefit you or people who can't necessarily pay you back? People for whom you pour out your life like Jesus has poured out his life for you. We live in a world, my friends, we live in a world where there are 6,500 6, unreached people groups 
in our world. 6,500 unreached people groups. So in other words, if you would line up all the people in all those groups in a single file line, it would circle this earth 25 times. Can you imagine a line of people as as long as going around the the circumference of this world that was 25 people deep all the way around the world? I mean, think about this. What does this mean for your life? If I had credible evidence that there was going to be a bomb going off in this place today, sometime today, and there was going to be a crowd of people here, I don't have to wonder what God's will is in that situation. I I shouldn't have to go home and just say, okay, God, listen, I found out that there's going to be a bomb going off during the middle of a worship service today and hundreds of people are going to die. Is it your will that I do something about it or should I just go on about my business? I think it's very reasonable that every follower of Jesus asks God, How do you want my life to be consumed? How do you want to use my life? Please use my life for maximum benefit for the lost. And make, Lord, make me willing to do so. Use my life. It's easy to sing songs, take my life and let it be. Consecrate the Lord to thee. Take my moments and my days. Let them flow with ceaseless praise. It's easy to sing them, but the reality, does it get into our heart? And we, Are we willing to say, Lord, take my life and let it be used for those who are lost? We live in a world where many people live without even the necessities of life. My friends, today or this week, 100,000 kids die of starvation and hunger-related diseases. A hundred thousand. And I don't say this to guilt you, but just to give you some perspective, right? The average American makes four times what a person outside of America makes. Yet, the average American spends 98% of their money on themselves you can say americans are the most generous people in the world but i still think uh want you to think about the fact that god gave you what he gave you for the purpose of the poor the blind the lame the crippled the disadvantaged the disconnected those outside of the kingdom of god This is not optional. It's not for set apart for a select few super Christians. This is what every follower of Jesus must consider when it comes to the gospel. How can your life be best leveraged for the Great Commission? So those of you who have a secular job, or really any job, one, Do you look at your job as a way of truly serving others or as a way of promoting yourself? If you see your job as a way of serving others, it changes your whole attitude, your whole attitude in that job. You should try it. (laughs) My job, no matter what your vocation is, your job is to truly serve other people. 
That will also serve as a guide as to what you will and won't do. Maybe even if you are a business owner and you look at your job as an avenue to serve other people and you know uh, that a certain venture will exploit or harm the poor, you won't even pursue it even if it is good for your bottom line. If it is going to hurt those who are disadvantaged, you say, no way. For example, if you're a lawyer, you avoid lawsuits that are built on exploitation and unfairness. Or maybe another question to think of, are you looking for ways to leverage your job for the Great Commission? Paul, I'm a teacher, and I'm sworn to secrecy when it comes to my faith. Or... Man, I, I, I am just a plumber. I am just an electrician. I am just a this. I'm a just a that. You are first a Christian. You are first a follower of Christ. You are first having your identity found in the work of Jesus Christ. You may, my friends, you may be the only witness to Christ many people in your workplace will ever receive. You are like a missionary to them. So when was the last time you actually shared Jesus with a co-worker? And honestly, if, if I took a poll, hands would be probably down. Some of you are in positions where you could use your, your company and your workplace to actually serve the community. Even if it wasn't optimal for your bottom line. Listen, there's nothing wrong with, with, work, with profit and, and working towards a good profit. There is nothing wrong with investing. There is nothing wrong with a 401k, right, Jake? You know, setting up your future, but at the same time, we have got to be looking at our resources with a kingdom perspective. And maybe another question we need to consider is, do you share, do you actually share the money that you make from your job? Those of you who are well off, this parable teaches you that God did not give you money to throw parties for yourself. And the reality is in our world, we are all the well off. And in this place, there is not one of you who is starving for food, wondering where your clothes is going to come from. And God has said, listen, your resources, your parties are not solely for you. He, he has given you opportunity to love and serve those who are disadvantages, disadvantaged and outside of the kingdom. You don't make money so that you can drive the nicest cars, live in the nicest houses, have the greatest school district, and have a life filled with the nicest amenities. God gave it to you so that you could leverage it for his kingdom purposes. And Paul, now, some of you are going, so Paul, do we have to, are you saying that you have to be poor to be true followers of Jesus? Of course not. Of course not. God has given you financial resources, and one of the reasons he gave it to you, he says that in multiple places in the Bible, like 1 Timothy chapter 6 and several verses in Proverbs, is that you can actually enjoy the resources that God has given you. Enjoy it. 
But there's, there's a difference, you see, in enjoying things along the way while you're in the midst of pouring out your lives for others. There's a difference in that and in living mostly for yourselves and throwing out an occasional bone for ministry. Jesus said the party of your life, the party of your life should be lived for guests who cannot benefit you or pay you back. So let me be clear. This is about a reorientation for a lot of you about your possessions. And it's a heart reorientation. A heart reorientation. And some of you might feel pretty good about yourself because you've been giving to God 10%, maybe 11 for the past few years. I've been tithing. But that doesn't matter if the other 90% of your life is entirely leveraged towards you. All that he has given you is his. Every red cent, every breath that you have breathed is his. And it's meant to leverage his kingdom. So unless you are ready to take a fundamentally different approach to your possessions and see all of them as expendable and leverage for the kingdom purpose of the God's kingdom to the point where you are willing to be truly generous with them or even to walk away from them for the purposes of the kingdom of God, you may not be a disciple of Jesus. Are you willing to give up everything for Christ? So what... That's the general question for your life. Is your life depicted as a party? And who would be those invited guests in your life? The second major point, and I'm going to try to give you some real practical, obvious application in this area that is often overlooked. So here's the second question. Is do you practice biblical hospitality? Now, when you hear this in church circles, in Christian circles, you automatically start thinking, or I, I always grew up thinking about hospitality as um, potluck. And maybe that's why I've grown bitter to potlucks and casseroles and you, you name it. Ugh. But the actual practice that Jesus is talking about here is inviting outsiders when it talks about hospitality, the poor, the lame, the blind, into our homes is called in the Bible hospitality. It literally means, that word in the Greek literally means to welcome the stranger. To welcome the stranger. Fellowship is, and we use that in Christian circles, right? Fellowship, that word. It's another one of those weird kind of Christianese words. Fellowship. Fellowship is when you hang out with all your Christian buddies And that's good, and that's great, and you should do that very frequently. But hospitality is when, in addition to all those close, loving Christian friends, you invite strangers to hang out with your friends so that they, too, can start becoming friends of God, friends of Jesus. That's how Jesus lived. He lived out with, he hung out with sinners and prostitutes. He hung out with tax collectors like Zacchaeus. He had less in common with sinners and tax collectors and prostitutes, but he hung out with them anyway. Because that's what 
God is like, and God wants to bring his healing. He wants to bring his salvation to those who are outside. So hospitality is something that is required. It is required for pastors and elders in places like 1 Timothy chapter 3 and Titus chapter 1. It is a requirement. It's something that is required of all Christians in places like Romans chapter 16, where Paul commands the whole church to practice hospitality. You want to get people's attention in our culture? Practice hospitality. In our day, any community, kind of community like that is countercultural. In a book called Bowling Alone, a Harvard professor chronicles uh, sociologically and statistically the decline of hospitality in the last few decades. It's an interesting book. The whole premise of the book is that bowling leagues are all but extinct. When people go bowling, more than likely, they do it alone. He also shared these statistics. The number of people playing cards together is down 25%. The number of bars, nightclubs, and taverns where people use, used to congregate is down 40%. Full-service meal restaurants where people walk in, sit down, and have a meal is down 25%. But the number of fast food restaurants are up a hundred percent because so many people eat so many of their meals alone in a car. Having a social evening with a neighbor is down 33%. Having friends over to your home is down 45%. So just inviting guests into your life, my friends, by today's standards is considered to be countercultural. When you, when you mix in that, that the guests bring, you bring into your life are outsiders who can't repay you back. That, my friends, is, is revolutionary. And some of you think that being countercultural is primarily putting a fish on the back of your car, wearing Jesus bracelets, or not drinking beer. That is not countercultural. If you really want to be countercultural or revolutionary, throw parties for people who cannot pay you back. That is where it's at. That, that would get the world's attention and go, what is going on with these people? I pray that our communities are going to be transformed by hospitality. I pray that Manhattan is going to be transformed by the warmth of our church. Our true hospitality, opening up our homes, opening up our lives, opening up our tables, opening up our refrigerator to serve, to host parties, to invite strangers over, to become friends. The gospel tends to move most effectively along relational lines. You know, this is my one get it off my chest moment, okay? And I question whether or not to say it, but I will. Some of you are just way too cheap. Just way too cheap. And, and, and if you were Dutch, I would understand it. But not all of you are Dutch. The more that I walk with God, the more I hate cheapness. I hate it. Some of you don't spend enough money for big events or parties. You're tightwads. 
because you are storing up for your retirement as opposed to storing up for the kingdom of God. You are just a tightwad. Anything else? So sometimes, my friends, it is good and proper to spend money and to spend it lavishly on other people, people who cannot repay you. And if they try, you say, don't you give me anything. I don't want anything from you. I am just pouring out love on you. And that's exactly what Jesus did. My friends, throw parties. Don't give all your money away. Don't be stupid. Throw a lavish party and invite outsiders into your life. When was the last time you've had a neighbor or an unbelieving co-worker over for dinner? For some of you, never. Never. So, so that you don't feel guilty, I want us to go back to what is our motivation. Why should we do this? Because this is what Jesus has done for us. We were the poor, the blind, the lame. Where would you be without Jesus, my friends? Same place others are without you. Lost. Outside. And if you get that, if you get that, you'll start inviting others. If you don't get that, you will not invite others into your life. If you're not living that way, you... If you're not living that way, you you haven't gotten it. And some of you need to consider seriously whether you have experienced the, the power of the gospel moving in your heart. How do you spend your money and your time and your talents show that you are greatly indebted to grace? But the other motivation is, my friends, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Some of you should start thinking about eternity and leverage your life from that perspective. Psalm 90 tells us, teach us to number our days so that we may get a heart of wisdom. Teach me, O Lord. You and I, my friends, have been invited to a feast. And we are enjoying this feast. A feast that outweighs anything that we deserve and exceeds anything that we could ever repay. And when we understand that, when we begin to grasp all that our Savior has done to rescue us, to redeem us, to give us a life here and in the life forever, all of our excuses begin to crumble away and we long to share in His amazing love with those who have never experienced His amazing love. And we want to, we have a desire now to go out into the highways and the hedges and compel the poor and the crippled, the blind and the lame, those who are heavy metal rock nuts, those who are bikers, those who are plumbers and the electricians and those who are fellow co-workers who are far from Christ to come in and experience the love of Jesus that has made us whole. I want to encourage you to look around. Look around this week. Look around. Find some people who are different from you and who will never be able to repay you. And I want to encourage you, compel you, plead with you. 
Invite them into your life. Strangers. The weird neighbor. The in-law. Invite them into your life. I want you to see in them a reflection of what we must have looked like to Jesus. And yet, He loved us. And He shed His blood to rescue us. And He rose again to welcome us into His family. Miss Yoday Church, this is the gospel. And I, I beg you to receive it. Receive the love of your Savior and then go out and reflect the good news in, in the way that you live. It is a privilege to be able to feast now while we wait for the day where every wound is going to be healed, where every tear is going to be washed away, and when we feast ultimately with our Savior face to face. But until then, we are called as God's people invite the strangers into our lives. Welcome them as Jesus has welcomed us. Be extravagant. Be loving. Please don't be a cheapskate.